to episode 200 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 24th of October, 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Fainan. Howdy. Graham. Yay. And Will. Oi, oi. Yeah, 200 episodes. I can't believe we got here. Yeah, congratulations, Joe. Yeah, well done. Congratulations, one and all. So, for our 200th episode spectacular, we promised you something shit, <laughs> but we're going to give you something mediocre instead. A new Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're going to do is... 200 episodes in review. We're going to look back at what has happened since we started the show. So Late Night Linux started in January 2017, and Graham and Will, you joined in April 2018, which was quite a long time ago now. Wow. Really? Jesus. Yeah. So a lot has happened in that time. So are you all ready then? Let's go. I'm definitely ready. Ready for Rishi. <laughs> Dot com. <laughs> So where do we start with this? Uh, I suppose let's start with the downer, as is our brand. The decline of Mozilla, that has been charted by this show. We have seen Firefox market share drop. We've seen them do all sorts of ridiculous shit. They have kind of rallied a little bit recently with some good initiatives, but it does feel like it's a bit too little too late to me. I think over the years, we have tended to lose sight of the fact that Firefox is still a good browser. It is not broken. It is fast. It is secure. It has got better privacy. It's a decent product. However, all of the crazy stuff they've got up to over the years to try and drum up a bit more interest or bring in a few quid or diversify their income pool, then it's sort of detracted from the fact that Firefox is a good browser. Now, I know we're talking about Mozilla and not Firefox on its own, but really that's what they're known for and that's, I think, what they should stick to. And as you say, Joe, it does seem to be that they're going back that way. We all know that a lot of Mozilla's income comes from Google search and you, we can all see that it needs to change. It needs to come up with something. But we all just want them to be more imaginative and to understand their core value. That seems to me like, I mean, I was just checked in 2018, there was 451 million US dollars was their combined income. It was 829 in 2019. This is like, for an open source project, unimaginable amounts of money that I just feel like they could have done such a better job of preparing themselves for the inevitable over all of these years and be more imaginative with how they invested that money. And ultimately, that's what's left me disappointed, but perhaps not surprised. I'd love to know what they do with that money, besides making two shite phones. <laughs> well, they pay people salaries, don't they, to do all sorts of ridiculous shit? Aye, but how many people and how much are they paying them? Because they might need to look at those numbers a bit. They pay salaries. I'm sure that they attract top-tier software developers, and so they demand quite a lot of salary. They've also got a lot of very nice offices in a lot of very nice cities. And at the end of the day, they are a not-for-profit, and so they've got all of this money slushing around. They've got to do something with it. But I think, as as Graham says, they should have invested it more wisely and, and perhaps kept some of it aside for a rainy day. Yeah, they should have invested in Tesla or something with it. Useful, useful, he said. Oh, right, Bitcoin then. Maybe they did. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned the shite phones failing. Firefox OS was pretty much dead when we started the show, but it officially died around about the time we started. But one of the biggest stories, I think, that we covered, and we did a special back before Will and Graham, when Canonical dropped Ubuntu phone and Unity and went back to GNOME. And I remember that being this big bombshell. 
It was a huge, audacious plan to begin with. It was so ambitious. It got so much reporting in all kind of the general press, the crowdfunding of the phone in the beginning, and then actually producing phones with, you know, a Spanish manufacturer and the experience being so-so. I was never surprised. I must admit, it's just if the odds were just too stacked against Canonical. The Unity thing is a totally separate item that's gone on and on and on, and, you know, it's still something we discuss now. Well, yeah, Ubuntu Unity is now an official flavour. We just had the Ubuntu 22.10 release, and this is the first release where Ubuntu Unity is an official flavour. So it hasn't gone away. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say this, but considering, you know, you have the likes of Red Hat or IBM, maybe we should discuss that, and Canonical investing so heavily in GNOME, I'm really surprised that GNOME hasn't developed more faster and better over those few years. It's not hugely different to the GNOME of a few years ago. And so maybe it's not a surprise that Unity has still got a place in people's hearts. Are you saying this built with inferior technology by a very stubborn <laughs> group of people? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that's what you said to me. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> but that announcement did seem like the high watermark in mobile Linux, like proper mobile Linux that wasn't Android. And since then, we've had a lot of community efforts but that feels like the last time we had a sizable company pushing any one project. And now it feels much more hobbyist. And there's nothing wrong with it being hobbyist. But it feels like mobile Linux is never really going to challenge Android. I mean, maybe it never could have. And that sounds like what you were arguing, Graham. But now it feels like the goalposts have shifted. And you've got this vibrant community of mobile Linux developers and enthusiasts who are just happy to be enthusiasts and hobbyists and not trying to build a product as such. Yeah, and I think you're right, but it's because you, at the end of the day, you need your phone. You know, when we talked about this, I don't know how long ago it was now, 18 months ago, and there was a time when I needed to use a Linux phone and I just couldn't use it. And until that particular problem solved, and that's a complicated problem to solve because of all the, the, the stack and the kernel and everything, then there's just no point in taking it further. I don't know if you were, if you heard, but if you were very quiet just then, you could hear Stuart Langridge shouting about why the web was better than apps. <laughs> uh, I could certainly hear it from here. Mm. I, I think that's, that's the, the gist of it, is that people now use phones as their primary computing device. And Companies, industry has have been keen to push apps as the the way to consume their services, whatever it is. And the the upshot is that if you do banking, have an electricity bill, you know all of these sort of very basic things. You generally, you need a phone or a, an app to use them, and so everyone's just got a phone and, and using it, and they won't be interested if the the device that they buy cannot offer every single application that they need. I think that's a reality. It may not be right, but I think that's the way that the, the world is these days. And so I, effectively, I think that that means there will never be an open source contender in the mobile space, which is serious. Going back to the desktop question, though, I think it's amazing how well KD Plasma's doing and you know with Phalium's KD Corner and we often discuss KD Plasma stuff it seems to me and this is just totally subjective that it's getting more and more kind of mind share and more and more people seem to be using Plasma I know it might not be there for the corporate desktop yet but it's a great desktop that seems to be improving and improving in other people's minds too and Plasma Mobile of course which is one of the uh, decent UIs you can get on top of the various mobile OSs. I mean, I think you made a really good point about it seeming like, you know, less big players, maybe it's become more community driven. And I think 
looking at the funding model that KD has got, it is based on the large percentage of the people who actually use the product. And they're hoping now that the KD board will actually hire more tech positions. That's one of the areas that Nate has applied for when he joined the board. And I, I think that's quite a good thing because maybe that we can actually be in control of our own destiny where it doesn't matter where you run. I'd like to believe that, but I just fear that a lot of these companies want to have the walled garden to keep us out or to keep anybody out because they're not very good at playing with anybody, let alone us with no real agenda behind it. But I do honestly feel like mobile Linux is in a good place now. I think we had delusions of grandeur with the Ubuntu phone thing that it could have possibly challenged iOS and Android's duopoly. And I think that we're in a good place now that there's this vibrant community that isn't trying to compete with them. They're just doing their own thing and just making this cool ecosystem for people who are into that sort of thing, for people who are just scratching itches and and doing it for the fun of it, the enthusiasm, the love of it. Mm. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. One thing that we've definitely seen over the course of this show so far is the rise of ARM and more recently RISC-V. And I suppose the decline of x86, starting, of course, with the death of 32-bit x86, essentially. Yes, you can still get some distros that will support that ancient hardware, but almost all of the mainstream distros have abandoned it, and rightfully so. And even powerful x86 is starting very slowly to be replaced by ARM. When we started this show, the latest Raspberry Pi was the Pi 2, which was a fine bit of kit. Now, of course, we've got the Pi 4, which feels infinitely faster. And that's the low end of things. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be running 32-bit Linux just because they want to, like the way people still run Amiga OS. (laughs) And those Pi 2s, you know, they still have to run the 32-bit Raspbian. That's obviously the right way to go. It's been in in transition for a long, long time. I think the ARM thing I should have seen because we saw servers running ARM in racks, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I was always kind of cynical that 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 they'd end up being powerful enough and all-purpose enough to run desktops. But as you say, Raspberry Pi 4 does it. And Apple have clearly demonstrated they can do it with the M1 or MX. It's a surprise and a good one, I think, considering the way that Intel, not so much AMD, but Intel raised costs, power consumption, and not really innovated. Yeah, I was looking at the latest 13 series, the 13900K, for example, and the power use of that is just ludicrous compared to equivalent ARM machines from Apple. Am I the only one that's kind of slightly 
not over keen on this whole idea where one processor is incompatible to the next. I don't know. It sounds like we're going backwards. Welcome to the 80s. Could we not have a standard? <laughs> <laughs> it is, though. It is like the 80s, where it's like, I want to bring my save game files from my BBC Micro over to my Palo as a Commodore 64, and fucking Elite just goes, get it right up here. You can't have that. Well, everything else has gone back to the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all fucking strangers' things and the Duffer Brothers' fault. Yeah, the uncanny valley of the 80s. That's what it is. But yeah, you're right. There is a serious downside to all the power-saving that you get with ARM, and that is the lack of general purposeness, if that's a word. Also, I don't think desktop Linux, if that's what we're calling it, is quite there yet. I run ARM64 versions of the distros that I run, I'm not going to say. And uh, quite often I'll hit problems where simply the architecture hasn't been considered. You know, everybody just puts x86 in there or none. And there'll often be problems with packages not built for ARM64 or in the case of FFmpeg coming in from Python modules, it's just assumed that you're using x86. So we actually need it to be used more for this to be ironed out, for it to be, I think, maybe for the Linux desktop to catch up a little bit with the ARM platform. There's this distro called Gen 2, right? And what they use is C flags, and that means that you can... Yeah, but even even if I were to use Arch, for example... <laughs> for example, <laughs> in a hypothetical situation... I've lost count of the times I've had to go into the package descriptor and actually manually change the architecture for the package just to be able to get it to build, you know, hypothetically on ARM64. For balance, I installed Debian ARM64 on a Pi 4 over the weekend, and everything has worked very well. Hmm. I would just say that. The package library is full. I haven't found anything missing yet. All the Debian wheels packages have worked. It's all been very good. I don't think that we are fully through this transition yet. I think we're in the middle of it, or maybe we're at the end of the beginning or something. But we've we've seen a lot of progress happen in the last 200 episodes. And I think that in another 200 episodes time, we'll probably all be sitting here using some sort of ARM machine. Yeah, I think you're right. And Risk Five as well, that was just a sort of theoretical thing when we started this show, mm. whereas now you can buy actual boards. And, uh, and even that laptop, even the odd acre of RISC-V laptops. <laughs> I think this addresses some of Phalium's concerns for something a bit more universal in the, uh, a RISC-V processor, much like ARM. But in this case, the, the instruction sets are the same and open source as well. I think that meets your goal for something a bit more open, Phalium. Yeah, it does mean, though, that someone with build infrastructure is going to have to store binaries for every bloody version of it like we, we have with the phones. And oh, I don't know, that just sounds awful. Mm. Couldn't we have some sort of standard that people could adhere to? We are slowly moving that way, but it's nowhere near as easy as x86. I think we have to give credit to the Asahi team. I know, Phelan, you're going to spout your usual bollocks. We don't care what you think <laughs> on this. They've done what I thought was impossible and got Linux even working on it. And I see constant updates about they're getting very close with the drivers for the graphics, and they've got Bluetooth working. So you have to take your hat off to that team. I think it's incredible. Even putting aside that it's running on Apple hardware, it reminds me a lot of kind of the cracking scene a little bit, you know, where geniuses would kind of break down the, the level of protection, emulating certain things to get other things to work. And in this kind of clean room space that they're working with and sure i'm certain apple are looking at exactly how they're engineering their solutions coming up with like 
GPU code for a, a GPU that isn't documented and is brand new inside like an ARM M1 is just absolutely mind-blowing. Incredible. Graham mentioned IBM buying Red Hat earlier. I don't think we've got much to say on that because we're just not in that world. But that was one of the biggest things that happened in the last 200 episodes. I think so. And from a purely personal perspective, it's a kind of a stage in kind of Linux's adolescence has, has passed. You know, Red Hat's become a big company under the umbrella organization of IBM. There's a kind of naivety that's been lost with that. And, and maybe some kind of culture's been lost as well with it. I see it certainly I can feel that in the ether. And apart from anything else, it was an acknowledgement that Linux and open source is valuable and is the present and the future. You have this ancient company in tech terms of IBM buying Red Hat. And Red Hat had already proved that they could make a shit ton of money out of open source. And IBM wanted to modernize. And what better way to do that than just acquire a, in relative terms, young, sprightly, hip company. We've seen a few things that were, I don't know, maybe controversial with CentOS, the stream stuff. You know, is the culture of Red Hat going to change? Are we seeing changes now when we were all hoping that maybe it was a internal takeover with Red Hat taking over the roles of IBMers, but it doesn't appear to work that way? I hope in as many years later down the road, we're not going to say, God, you remember when there was a Red Hat and uh, they disappear inside the behemoth. The stuff that I read about IBM and the stuff that I hear, none of it's especially encouraging. They seem to be still struggling, especially their cloud business seems to be struggling. I think that the idea that IBM needs to transform itself into a Linux first, you know, cloud native and all that jazz company is probably right, but they've got this baggage of years and years of, of being sort of a, a giant software house. I think that they've just left it too late. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if IBM goes away and all that's left is Red Hat. Well, let's cheer ourselves up and troll failing, shall we, and talk about Chrome OS. <laughs> oh, good. And how that has really, really been transformed from a browser, essentially, to basically a full OS now. Yeah, and... You know, my mum uses Chrome OS on her Chromebook and it's perfect for what she needs. There are certain restrictions you have to work around, but it's still Linux at the end of the day. And I don't know, I feel this way when we're talking about um, Linux on smartphones as well. You know, Android is by and large open source. And of course, we have the open source builds of that. And it's kind of the same with Chrome OS. I'm uncomfortable with it being yet another project that Google is able to push through all of its kind of browser framework and everything can take advantage of all that. But at the same time, it's better than Internet Explorer running on an expensive Lenovo full of adware. Is it though, Graham? Is it? <laughs> 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 At least that Internet Explorer kept to itself. <laughs> it only infected your machine, not the minds of many millions all around the world. <laughs> Fuck a bunch of Chrome OS share bastards, honestly. <laughs> well, I think just technically it's interesting, though, that you can do the Linux apps, the Android apps now, it's not just a browser anymore. And people still dismiss it as that because they haven't tried it. And I think you can just put aside for a second hatred of Google and not liking the proprietary nature of it or whatever and just appreciate it for what it is, which is a good technical achievement. 
and something that has been made from Linux. It might not be Linux, and that's a debate that I definitely don't want to fucking have right now. <laughs> but it certainly is made out of Linux. Sure. I mean, if we're going for terrible analogies, meth is a hell of a drug. Mm. If you could see the walls that a human can punch through with their bare fists, I mean, sure, it might kill you, but... <laughs> yeah, especially uh, the chemically pure blue stuff that Walter White used to cook. That was a great technical achievement. <laughs> we may be stretching this metaphor at this point. No, no, I think it's still got legs. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened to Fuchsia? Fuchsia was something that had been announced, or we were aware of at least, before the show started. And that has turned out to be a real fucking wet fart, as far as I'm concerned. It's almost like making your own operating system kernel is really difficult, and maybe they should just stick with the one they've got. Well, maybe. But it's turned up on a few smart displays, and not really anything else yet, and it keeps feeling like it's going to be any, any day now, any day now, they're going to release a phone with it, or a tablet, or a, a Chromebook with it, but no, it's just languishing, and... It feels like it's just going to go the way of all the Google stuff and just get fucking shut down. Who would have thought? <laughs> I genuinely thought it was a threat. And I still worry that it might be a threat long term to Linux. But as each day and month and year goes by, I feel like it's less and less likely to happen somehow. Yeah, and I think a wider comment linked slightly to Mozilla is that I think Google or Alphabet maybe despite its, I don't know, $70 billion revenue, is having a bit of an existential crisis. What does it do? What should it do? What is it good at? I'm not convinced by any of its recent attempts. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step -step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Another one of the bombshells that we experienced was when Microsoft bought GitHub. And there was a lot of debate about which way that was going to go. And even just recently, in the last couple of weeks, a website has popped up, githubcopilotinvestigation.com, from Matthew Butterick, who is a lawyer who is not happy at all with Copilot and is trying to get enough momentum going for a lawsuit against Microsoft and GitHub. Oh, no. <laughs> well, at the bottom of this website, he strays off the facts and into very much feelings about it and says that he had hoped 
that the acquisition would go well, but now he's starting to think that it fucking hasn't. And it's been a disaster for potentially all of open source. There's a lot of hyperbole in this, but Phelim, no doubt you totally agree with him that it was a terrible thing that Microsoft bought GitHub. Um, yes. <laughs> I think any one single entity that has control of that much, I don't know, projects, even thought, R&D, all of those things. I think it would be a project that something like the Linux Foundation, not quite them. I don't actually mean they should take it, but something that has a bit more altruistic goals should be in charge of something like that. Because look at what they're doing with the co-pilot stuff. That's a lot of sort of misguided use and abuse of other people's software. They can throw their weight behind stuff. They can give stuff away for free, but I just think something in such a powerful position, it actually should be a almost competition watchdog type area just to make sure people aren't up to shenanigans. Yeah, because competition watchdogs really understand the situation as well. <laughs> yes, I will take that point. <laughs> but a good one. Maybe we could have a good one. Maybe some of that money yes. could be... <laughs> good one. Some, somewhere out there. <laughs> Cuckoo. Stop game. <laughs> Stop spouting truths. I don't like it. Well, there's one area that I think has been an overwhelmingly positive story, and that is gaming on Linux. Stadia was once again another wet fart from Google. <laughs> and that has just provided hours of entertainment <laughs> while we laugh at them. Don't forget free controllers. <laughs> yeah, free controllers as well. But meanwhile, Valve have really gone from strength to strength. Just before we started this show 200 episodes ago, the feeling was that they had totally shit the bed on Linux gaming. They tried these Steam machines, they'd flopped... They'd just gone back to Windows. The whole thing seemed like a hedge against Windows locking down how you install software and that they were just using Linux as leverage against Microsoft. Well, that foundation has been built on culminating in the Steam Deck and obviously the um, Proton stuff in the meantime. And gaming on Linux is just a massive success story as far as I can see. To the point where I almost bought a Steam Deck and I don't even fucking play games. So what does that tell you? It's definitely been a success for playing of games on Linux. It hasn't been a success for native games on Linux. And I think that the real change came when Steam seemingly gave up on that and decided just make the Windows games run perfectly on Linux. Mm. And then it was a, a you know a, a snowball success. Um, all these games were, were working. People were reporting higher frame rates in some cases, general stability, improvements week after week after week. And now we are where we are. We can play pretty much all the Windows games and uh, they, they work really well. It's a, a brilliant piece of engineering. I genuinely don't even bother looking to see what compatibility is on a game. I've been so lucky. I think I have about 40-odd games, and I think it was one of them didn't work. And I just said, can I get a refund? It didn't work on Proton. Instantly got my money back. It was fine. And ironically enough, about a month later, I saw on Proton DB that it had got, you know, gold status or something like that. And I hmm. rebought the game, and it worked fine. So uh, oh, nice. happy days. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and this is when Crossover had been trying to do the same thing for years and years and years, even, you know, maintaining their own compatibility databases, which sometimes had a AAA title there running on Linux. It's it's phenomenal engineering, as well said. Amazing that sometimes the games run faster on Windows. And even I thought on the Steam Deck I might put Windows on just to at least see what the difference might be like. And I just can't be bothered. It works so well with SteamOS. And I love the way that Valve did the work as well. They got involved with the likes of Calabra and the wine guys, and they actually worked with them rather than sort of bought out somebody and then tried to compete with them, which is the way a lot of that seems to go. So that was kind of nice. It was like a bit of cooperative competition. Valve seems like the kind of company that we should hate, but it just feels hard to hate them. They got the best toys. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they're privately owned um, they still kind of do things in their own interest, which maybe aren't in the best big corporation interest if they were a public company, um, which is nice. I don't know. I hope it lasts. Um, but so far, it's working well. I've said it before, but I can't believe that we can buy like a, a full PC in a handheld with touchscreen KD Plasma running on it. It still blows my mind. It's also, I've seen people get really engaged with Linux as a result of having a Steam Deck. You know, this is it's tapped into the massive PC modding community who've turned a lot of them have turned their attention to Linux and adding things to, you know, the the desktop mode. Um it's just really great to see that's like a whole new generation experience Linux in a way that we would never have imagined. I bet it does more for Linux than WSL does. <laughs> <laughs> a nice link. Mm. Yeah, we have to have an honourable mention for WSL. We've talked about this so much that I just I don't want to rehash it. Valium, I know you hate it. You think it's bad. I love us. That's brilliant. Yeah, but it's 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 definitely significant. We've talked so much about it, and I feel like it's going to be important for years to come. Significant, like the Black Death, I guess. <laughs> Put that on the website. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week for episode 201 when we'll have some discoveries and who knows what else. But until then, I've been Joe. Okay. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. (laughs) 